section. But I want you to look in Psalms chapter 62 and verse number 1. Let's stand together and read this. It would be a good time for us to stand in reverence of God's word. And let's read this scripture together. Verse number 1, the Bible says David was praying. And he says, Truly my soul waiteth upon God, from him cometh my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. How long will you imagine mischief against man or against a man? You shall, be a, you shall be slain, all of you, as a bowing wall shall you be, and as a tottering fence. It says, they only consult to cast him down from his excellency, but it says, they delight in lies, they bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. Selah. My soul, wait thou only upon God. My expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. And God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, ye people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. You can be seated. A lot of times people think, Let's get this cough drop out. A lot of times people think that that word salah is like a, um, it's a musical thing to bring in a pause. Uh, when you're reading music and you see where it says crescendo, it means to get louder. It means to say it with a little more strength and enthusiasm. And a lot of people think that salah is like a pause or a frame. Some of the preacher friends like Evie Hill thinks that it actually means, you know, praise the Lord. That As he was saying that, that God is my refuge, you know, I shall not be moved. Praise the Lord. God is a refuge for us. Praise the Lord. I like to think that it thinks of it just like this right here. Um, Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. What do you think about that? Right? That you just pause for a moment and it's like God saying, just listen and kind of hang in there. This morning I want to preach to you about having difficult prayers to pray. Difficult prayers to pray. In order to set the scene, I hope you'd pay attention and that you would focus this morning because we really need this. Because you may not be in a difficult time right now in your life, and you may not be in those difficult prayer times, but you will be. There will come times where you pray difficult prayers. And I can remember as my grandmother, my dad's mother, was fading away and had a stroke. And I can remember my grandmother, we called her, my, the, the kids called her Big Granny because she was Big Granny. She was a plus-size lady. She was about 200. She was a plus woman. But yet when she died, it withered her down to like 90, 80, something like that. I think the last one was about 83 or 82 pounds. That's hard. And we watched this take place for 151 days. And our prayers in the beginning were, God, please don't take. Lord, please give life. Lord, please heal. Please do that. But then there come a time in the life of Christians, in the life of a son, my dad, in the life of other children that were my aunts and my uncles, and even in our lives, to where it shifted, Brother Carl. It shifted into things that you never thought that you would pray for. And it is, Lord, not don't take my mama, but Lord, I don't want to see him suffer. Please take my mama. Brother Brandon understands that. We were talking earlier about that before the service, and it's very difficult to move from that because in some ways, and you can testify, and others in here can testify, it, it, you never want your faith to seem diminished at all. And I don't believe that it's diminished. I think what's happening is, is your faith or your will is being converted into God, and you're saying, God, I need you to help. Just like yesterday when I shared, it is not God's will that we perish. It's not God's will that we die. It is not God's will that anybody would have this stupid virus. 
We can't sit around and blame God and say it's God's will that so-and-so got it and they got it. That's like saying it was God's will for a kid to have a wreck at 16 years old and they're taken out of here. That's not God's will. That's what sin has done to us. That is what sin and the condemnation of sin has done to us. It's God's will that that person would be received into life everlasting, life eternal with the Lord. That's God's will. But see, sometimes it's easy for us to say these Christianese kind of phrases where we want to kind of make it easier for one another and go, okay, well, we'll say it like this because it helps me swallow it or it helps it to be able to be a little bit, uh, you know, palatable, you know, where I can kind of taste it a little bit better. And what we need to understand is, is that from the beginning, had Adam and Eve known what they did in disobedience to God would have led them to weeks or months or years later of them holding the body of their son Abel because their other son had killed them. I don't believe that they would have ever done what they did had they known what effects was going to take place. Any more than you and I, and death robs. Death steals from us. Death comes, and that's what David is having happen here in his life. David is going through something in his life where he is saying, Lord, these people want my life, and these people want my life. And and Ahithophel, the grandfather of Bathsheba, he wants my life. He wants me dead now, and he used to be one of my best friends. They want this, and they want that. And he said, they're coming after me. And he says, Lord, but they're like, they they, they imagine mischief all the day long against man, and, and, and they shall be slain. He said, they're like a bowing wall, he said, and they're like a tottering fence. He says, their destruction is eventually going to come upon themselves. But he constantly saying here in his prayer, he says, Lord, but I'll trust you. I'll look for you. You're my refuge. You're my strength. You're my rock. You're my defense. So, Lord, I'm going to put all my trust in you. David said it like this, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but I will put my trust in thee, O Lord. Amen. In the name of the Lord. We can't trust in our possessions. We can't trust in our military to keep the United States in uh, being blessed by God. We've got to get back on our knees in repentance and ask God to bless this nation once again. It's not because of the size of our guns or our missiles of the reason that God has been with us thus far. It's because we were once a nation who was under God. And so looking at all of these things and in our prayers, have you ever gotten to the time in your prayer where you're praying and you're saying, God, I'm seeking you and God, I need you and I need your help. And you don't feel like that there's any communication. You don't feel like he's hearing or you don't feel like there's an answer. Sometimes we get there. Sometimes the Bible talks about that it's like the heavens have turned to brass and we can't hear from God. Do you remember what the Bible says about love in 1 Corinthians? He said, if I don't have love or have not charity, he said, if I give my body to be burned and do all these things and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. He said, it's like a tinkling cymbal or what did he say? A sounding brass. It's just the gong show in prayer time. It's just a big, huge gong and you can't even focus. And the reason sometimes that we can't focus, listen, in prayers, we got to get this first. And the reason is, is because sometimes our sins are hindering our prayers to the Lord. Sometimes our sin is what's causing us not to be able to hear him and us not to be able to relate to him because the Bible says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And that means this right here. If I continue to love my sin, then the Lord will not hear me. He's not going to pay attention. And what that means also is, is that if we don't deal with our sins first, we can pray all the prayers we want of God, give me, give me, give me. But it ain't going to work until you pray the prayer of God, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me first. And so we have to look at it. I want you to know that you're not alone. 
You're not alone when it seems like the prayers have been shut up or the heavens have been shut up and there's no prayers that are coming through. You're not alone. The Bible says from the book of Malachi, which is the last book of our Old Testament, all the way to the book of Matthew when he began to write the genealogies according and coming down the lineage of Jesus, did you know that there was about a 400-year period where God was silent with his people? Brother Bill, there was no prophet. There was no king that reigned on the throne. The last king that had reigned on the throne was Jehoiakim, and he was pulled down from king, and he said there'll never be another one set on the throne until who sets on the throne? Jesus Christ sets on the throne. Amen? He said there'll never be another one. So Israel and all of their blessings were robbed or stolen from them or taken from them because they did not want to hear God. He said in the book of Isaiah, Haggai, Habakkuk, all of these books, Zephaniah and Zechariah, all of them, Malachi, he said, in tithe and offerings, you rob me. He said, I've blessed you, and you choose not to give back to me. He said that in Malachi. He said, will a man rob God? And they said, where have we robbed you, God? And they said, in tithe and offerings, you have robbed me. He said, you come and you want all of this stuff, but yet you don't want to give your lives for me. Not only that, but in the book of Haggai and Habakkuk, he told them, he said, your offerings that you bring to me are a stench in my nose. He said, it stinks. He said, it actually makes me nauseated to think about your sacrifices and your offerings that you bring. What was going on as they were coming to the temple to worship God, they began to do this. Brother Carl began to look around at all of his possessions that he had, and Brother Carl said, I've got a big family, and I've got to go to the house of God and to offer sacrifice for them. And you know what? I can't continue to give him this best lamb that I've got. I have to make money. And God would understand because he's not going to leave me here alone, and he's going to understand, so therefore I'm going to take that one back here. It's got a broken leg. Or I'm going to take the one over here that's got broken horns off of it or this lamb that's got the mange because the Lord knows that he's going to provide for us so therefore we need to kind of just play along with this and let's give God the the broken things that we have and the maimed things that we have because he needs to take care of us and we need the best ones in order to make money instead of trusting God that if you give him the best that you can never outgive him and also why did God always want the best why did he want the one without spot and without blemish because it had to be a representation of him himself it had to be a representation of perfection and therefore that's why bill couldn't die for you and cody couldn't die for you it had to be jesus that died for us because he was without sin so here they go and carl goes i'm going to give this one and god tells them through haggai and habakkuk and he tells him he says you that bring the lame and the maimed animals unto me and sacrifice them as something holy unto the Lord. Do you know what he asks them? He says, why don't you go and give those to your governors that tax you and do this? Why don't you give unto them all of the leftovers instead of always giving me the leftovers? And God tried his perfect compassion and his perfect compelling all the people. He tried, Brother Danny, his best. He sent Jeremiah. And he told Jeremiah through the words of Jer- through the mouth of Jeremiah, he said, listen, in chapter 6, he says, were the people ashamed when they committed sin? He said, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? You know what Jeremiah said? He said, no, and neither did they blush about it. They were coming to the house of God and still living the exact same way. They were coming to church expecting to go to heaven but living like hell six days out of the week. 
And he said, they're wrong. He said, they're hypocrites. They're false. They're false prophets. He even goes to the point, and I know that you're thinking I'm talking about you, but in Jeremiah chapter 23, he said, woe unto the pastors that lead my sheep astray. That all they're doing is concerned about getting all that they can profit on. How they can come and they don't have to go out. And they're not laboring because they say they're in the word. And therefore, they get the lambs and they get the sheep and they get the harvest and the crops. And what they've done is they're trying to make a career instead of a calling out of it. And he hammered the priests and he hammered the pastors and he hammered all those preachers. Why? Because every single one of God's people... They were all convinced that just the religious ceremony was enough. And if you don't, if you don't hear anything this morning, understand, that's kind of where we're moving now. We think that just the church service is just enough. I went to church, God. I did my duty, God. I did all of that stuff, and I said the things, and I prayed the prayers and all that, and God was quiet with them for 400 years. Man, it's bad to be in a place where God's quiet with you. How many, I don't know, I mean, I know everybody here, I was fixing to ask you how many of you had a father, but everybody in here pretty much had a father. How many of you can remember, I can remember coming home, and I had to show a report card, or I did something that day, and I had to turn up. The teachers made us, back in those days, write our own stinking notes of death to bring home to our family and give it to them. You know, and you bring this back tomorrow, signed. <laughs> yeah. So I learned quick how to write my mother's name. And... Uh, <clears throat> Hey, I bring those things, and I can remember being at the dinner table and dad being quiet. When he was quiet, it was like, oh, no, don't, don't do anything. Don't move or anything. When dad was joking around, because y'all know all him, he's always cutting up and stuff. But when he was quiet, it was because of something that had happened. And something was going on. And imagine being in the times where you're praying to God. For 400 years, there had to be some of those leftover remnant of God's people praying, saying, God, please speak to us. Do you know why God's not come back just yet? A lot of people think it's because, you know, uh, this time frame and this star has to align with this one and stuff like that. God simply hasn't come back yet because of grace. God simply hasn't come back yet because of his grace and his mercy and because there is a remnant of people that are still praying, God, forgive us. God, please speak to us. You know, how many of you pray these prayers and say, Lord, I want to see revival again? I want to see you move like I've seen you move before, like I've read that you've moved before. The Bible says in Amos chapter number 8 that God told them, he said, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to send a famine in the land one day. He said, but it's not going to be of bread and water. He said, but it's going to be of hearing of the words of the Lord. He said, there's going to be a famine in the land to where you're not going to be able to hear the prophets and you're not going to be able to hear the pastors and the preachers and all of those things. And God told them that this was going to happen. And for 400 years, God was quiet with his people until something happened one day and God wasn't quiet anymore. You know what one of the first things was that God wasn't quiet about is that in Bethlehem somewhere in a manger somewhere, probably not a wooden manger, but a stone manger somewhere, a baby's cry was heard. And God began to speak and to talk to his people again. The Bible says, if you would, turn all the way over to Luke chapter number 2. And while you're turning to Luke chapter number 2, I know that you're thinking, finally, we're getting to Luke chapter 2. This is Christmas season, and you are supposed to read to us Luke chapter number 2. And you, Brother Steve, you're supposed to use Linus as the illustration. And that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. And that unto you is born in the... Uh, city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. But I want to show you something different 
that God has shown him. Look all the way down to verse number 21. Luke chapter 2 and look at verse number 21. The Bible says, And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcision of the child, which is Jesus, says his name was called Jesus, which was also named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy unto the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said of the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, look at what he said, Lord, now lettest thou servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at all those things which were spoken of him. And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yes, a sword shall pass through or pierce through thine own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts might be revealed. And there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and lived with a husband seven years from her virginity, and she was a widow of about fourscore and four years, which departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And she coming in in that instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Israel." If we look at this scripture, and we're going to go back and try to look at some of it. If you look at this scripture, the first thing, when you're having times of difficulty in prayer, because there are difficult prayers that we need to pray, you got to remember just two things. Number one is that prayer takes time. Prayer takes time. And what I mean by that is not necessarily in our calendar time or hourly time, but prayer takes time of God. It's not always, sometimes you pray something and God answers almost immediately. And then there's sometimes you pray and you wait and you pray and you wait and you wait and you wait and you you look at it and you know, okay, God, I'm just going to trust you. I'm going to wait for you to answer those prayers. And, And sometimes it's those things of what I'm talking about in time. It has to be in God's time frame. And it's not that God is withholding stuff from you because he's angry with you. But it's because it has to be on his time because everything is going to, what? Give him glory. I can remember when we were younger and Andrew was younger. And I could always remember praying. And I'd pray for sick people, sick people and we would pray for our loved ones and stuff. And I can remember sometimes going in there and we would gather as a family when we were going through difficult times. And we would hold hands together and pray. There's been times where we prayed together probably when they were younger, uh, probably all the way up to about 16 years old. We'd pray together every night in the living room. And then there comes a time where they have to pray on their own and they're doing their prayers and stuff now. But in difficult times, we always say, hey, look, let, come here, let's pray together. And we 
try to hold hands and we, we pray and we, we uh, seek the Lord and stuff. And I can remember Andrew was about eight years old, so Jacob would have been about five years old. And we were in the living room and my grandmother was suffering and Patty's grandmother was suffering and, and death was coming and it was just hard and just time was just ticking every day. The boys would see us. We, we were going to uh, two hospitals every day trying to visit them and my parents were watching the boys sometimes and stuff. And, and I can remember us praying and when we finished praying, I always pray with, Lord, we ask that your will be done and that you would receive all of the glory. And I always do it like this, Lord, this is what I want. Okay, I don't know how y'all talk to him, and I talk to him like I want to. Y'all talk to him like you want to. But I go, Lord, this is what I want. Really and truly, this is what I want, and I'm just laying it out here for you, and this is how I'd love for it to go like this. You know, and th- but I always end and say, God, I do. I trust your will, and I ask for your glory to be done. And I can remember we finished praying for Patty's grandmother and my grandmother that day, and when we finished praying, um, well, <laughs> Andrew had this face about him that just was like, no, nah, I love you. And I was like, what's wrong, buddy? He's like, nothing. He didn't want to go against me. Nothing. And I was like, well, well, something's wrong. He said, every time you pray, God's will be done, people die. (laughs) And I was like, what do you mean? He was like, every time we pray, God's will be done, they die. And he was being honest as an eight-year-old, and I even said it the other day. He's like, you do. And I said, but you got to understand it's not God's will that we die or that we perish. It says plainly in the Scriptures, it's not God's will that we perish, but all should come to repentance so that we can have what? Life everlasting. But every time we want something, we have to end it by saying, we have to know that, God, your glory is better than my desire. Your glory, what if it brings you glory, then okay, Lord, then I'll trust and I'll do that, and it takes time. Imagine 400 years go by, and then you're at the temple and you're seeing all of this Roman sinful stuff going on. If you could imagine with me being in the temple of Jerusalem in the first century there in the days of Jesus, or right before he come, and they're all trying to focus, and then you have Pilate, you have these Roman guards that come in. You have now in the city of Jerusalem that used to be named the place of God, the house of God, you know, because that's where God was going to meet his people. But yet when you walk through the marketplaces, you saw all of this worldly Roman stuff. When you walked into Rome, when they came in and conquered a city, when they took over everything, they always thought that if we could keep people healthy, if we could keep people bathed, and we have good clean water, then we would have a good foundation of a city. That's probably a good thought process, but what they would do is when they would conquer a city and come in, like Bethshean or even in Jerusalem, when they built those Roman cardos in the main ways as they come in, they would also build public bathhouses. And these public bathhouses were places where these people could maintain hygiene and keep clean. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with hygiene or cleanliness, right? But the problem was is that when people went into these public bathhouses, they did not realize that even as their little children that were babies walking alongside them, that they were going to look up at these Corinthian columns and these headstones all the way around on these big pillars, and it was going to have ungodly and pornographic images all in the public square. And so now these people of God were constantly, as they were told, to cover cover up their flesh because God said the flesh was sinful and that they were to cover themselves up as that virgin because they were to only have given themselves to their husbands in marriage. Now, Brother Bill, they're all being indoctrinated by all of this pornographic, horrible, sinful stuff. And then they're also going into the fact of loving themselves more than they love anything else because the Romans also thought that if we could keep them healthy, 
healthy and exercises can do this, we would create games that would keep their mind off of all this other stuff. So now the world has come involved. And listen, if you don't know what I'm trying to get at right now, it might be because you're not really awake, but we are in the same scenario today. As much as we constantly within our homes try to protect our children from all the outside stuff, the outside stuff keeps coming in somehow. The outside stuff keeps bombarding all of our kids, all of our families, all of our husbands, and all of our wives. It keeps coming in day after day after day after day. There's more sinful things that we are to accept. And so imagine being in that same scenario, and you're at the church house, and you're at the temple, and you're praying, God, I've read in your word where you're going to send your son, where he is going to be the Messiah. He's going to be this, and you're praying for it. The Bible says in Luke chapter 2, verse 25, it says, Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout. He was a righteous man because of the righteousness of God within him. Well, look at these words right here. He waited for the consolation of Israel. The Bible says that this guy went to the temple daily and he was constantly praying and waiting, not, listen to me, not for the constellation of Israel. He wasn't waiting for the stars to align together again and do all this stuff, just like many people are talking about how cool it's going to be around Christmas Eve. I think they got Saturn and all this other stuff supposed to line up and it's supposed to be the first time it's ever happened and stuff like that. Let me tell you something, those things happen, but when Jesus comes, it's not going to be because stars line up up it's going to be because God's going to say son go get your children go get my bride go get your bride go get my children right but when you look at this Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel he was waiting for the consoling he was waiting for the healing of Israel this guy brother Bill I mean I imagine I would love to have a heart like this guy but he was constantly going to church praying for the healing of the people of God he was saying, God, please touch us. Please be with us. Please send your son. Look at what it says in the next part. It says, the Holy Ghost was upon him, and it was revealed to him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. The Holy Spirit revealed to him that he wouldn't die until he saw the Messiah. How about that? I don't know about y'all. I don't know about Simeon. I would have used that for my advantage. Anyone that would have said, hey, anyone want to cross this mighty gorge and go over this wire right here? Anyone want to do that? I would go, I'll do it because I'm not going to die until Jesus comes, right? Look, he was devout and he wanted to see Israel and God's people consoled and done the right way and compassion to come. Not only was he the one that waited, but the Bible says Anna waited for the redemption of the people of God. Look at verse number 36. It says, and there was one Anna, a prophetess. Oh, Amen. It says, the daughter of Thaniel of the tribe of Asher, she was of great age and lived without a, with a husband seven years from her virginity, and she was a widow of about fourscore and four years, which departed not from the temple, but served God, look at these words, with fastings and prayers, night and day. And she coming in in that instance, it says, gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spoke of him to all them that looked for redemption in Israel. The Bible says that this woman evidently was married when she was about 12 or 13 years of age, when the Israel woman became an actual woman and had glory of her virginity becoming a woman. They would actually give her not Dolly Parton's coat of many colors, but they would give her a veil that had many colors that was actually the beauty of her womanhood and virginity. It says that she became that woman and she was only married for seven years after her virginity. So evidently when she got married, that's 13 or 12 or 13 she only had a husband for seven years and he died 
Most people have many, many years and many, many years, but she only had seven years with a husband, and then he died. And what do you do? She dedicated herself to the house of the Lord. Evidently, it was either because of her brokenness or because of God's greatness. She went to the house of God every day and gave her life to fasting and praying. And fasting and praying, looking for the redemption of the people of God every single day. And the Bible even goes on to say, it says that she was a widow of about four score and four years. Now, I know that sounds a little Abraham Lincoln-ish. You know what I mean? But what it's talking about for 84 years... Now, some people look at it like this. They look at it like maybe she got married when she was 12, and then seven years later her husband died, and now she's 84 years old. Then there's some people that look at it like this because of the way the text reads to us is that she got married when she was 12, lived with a husband for seven years, and lived without a husband as a widow for 84 years, which would make her about uh, 103 years old, something like that. It doesn't matter if she's 84 or 103. The text is trying to say something to us. You know what the text is trying to say? She was old. That's all it's trying to say. And then we could, I could have probably summed it up with this. And she was a widow woman and she was an old lady. Because that's what it's saying. What God's trying to show us is that she prayed daily. At least we know, Brother Bill, for 84 years this woman prayed and fasted every day and night. Can you imagine that? 84 years old, constantly going, praying and fasting, praying and fasting. Not for what she wanted, but for what was needed. It wasn't for what she wanted. She didn't, it's not recorded that she said, oh God, give me another man, give me another man. Evidently, she didn't want another man. No, she wanted God's son. And for 84 years she prayed. Prayer in difficult times. Listen to me. It takes time. It takes time. It may take 84 years. Some of you, don't you give up. I was praying with a girl the other night who was talking about the life of JJ and how much just glory and honor in Christ was all there. And she said, I sure hope my daddy gets saved and like that. And so I was praying. And I was like, Lord, please save this girl's daddy. And I told her, I said, don't you give up praying. Prayer sometimes takes time. It takes difficult or difficult prayers take time. It was 400 years that had come and gone before Anna or before Simeon had ever seen the blessing of God. And so it took time. Listen to what the Bible says in Hebrews. It says, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past under the fathers by the prophets. It says God used all those prophets to do that in the Old Testament. But look at what it says in this. But in these last days he's spoken to us by his son. He said, whom he hath appointed heir of all things because cause whom also he had made the world, or by whom also he had made the world, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. You look at that and you go, why does God speak through the Son? Because He is the Word. His name itself is Logos. He is the Word of God. It says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. He brought His Word to us. Brandon sang it a while ago. Word of God speak. Let it 
fall down, pour out like rain. Amen. Why Jesus? Why is Jesus better than the angels? The writer of Hebrews said in verse 4 that he is being made much better or so much better than the angels. Why is Jesus better than the angels? Because the angels came into the shepherds that night, Craig, and said, Behold, we bring you tidings of good tidings of great joy. Unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. You know, you will go and find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. They delivered the word of God. But Jesus is better than the angels because he's not delivering the word of God. He is the word of God. Amen. And not only that, they can only speak about what they know of God. He speaks not as he knows of God, but as God. He is God. Amen. Listen, he himself is better. They couldn't do better. Prayer takes time, but it's worth waiting for. Imagine Simeon, whenever he looked and saw Jesus, it was a relief to this man. It was a relief to him because why? Evidently, this man had, even in his old age, he was ready to go home. He was ready to pass away. It seems that way because the text says that when he saw him, he said, Okay, Lord, now let thy servant depart in peace. You know what I mean? I've waited long enough. Now let me go home, right? He had went every day looking for that. Look at what Psalm 62 verse 1 said. He said, David said, My soul, truly my soul, waiteth. Upon God, from him cometh my salvation. Those words right there, or that word, waiteth right there, is actually two words. It actually means this, that it silently waits. Patiently, quietly, silently waits. That we will wait on the Lord. Don't you understand when the word of God says, be still and know that I am God. He's telling you to quietly. He's calming our spirit. Lamentation says it like this in chapter 3, verse 25. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Simeon waited. Anna waited. Listen, Mary waited. But not only that, but there was a guy by the name of Joseph of Arimathea in Mark chapter 15 and verse number 43. Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God. He came and went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. After Jesus was crucified, he wanted the body of Jesus so that he could wrap him in the spices and lay him in the grave, put him in a borrowed tomb. But the Bible says something that's really cool about this guy. All we've ever known about Joseph of Arimathea was that he was a rich man. He evidently might have been one of those Pharisees or the Sanhedrin. But yet what we miss about him is these words right here. He waited for the kingdom of God. This guy right here prayed for the kingdom of God to come, and he waited. Prayer takes time. Here's the second thing and the last thing. Prayer takes trust. When you're in difficult times of prayer, it takes trust. The Bible says, and look at verse number 21. He says, when eight days were accomplished for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was also named of the angel, uh, it says, was also named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And then he pauses and says, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy unto the Lord. So they came to present him unto the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord. And look at this, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. The Bible says that they're, I'm going to go ahead and go through this quickly. 
It says, Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. He was a just and a devout man. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Ghost was upon him. It was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost. He did not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came to the temple by the or came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people, a lot to lighten the Gentiles in the glory of thy people Israel. Day after day this guy came. And time kept ticking and ticking and ticking and ticking. But when you stop and think about this part of it, this kind of helps me. This is where I really wanted to preach from. Is that the trust factor is really more important than the time factor. Time is because we, we're not patient people. But the trust factor is what we need more than anything. Now, I want you to picture this guy coming in day after day. He was just and he was devout. He was a man that devout was, means devoted, devotion. He was dedicated to the house of the Lord. He was a just man, which meant that he walked uprightly and that he walked in the just and the righteousness of God Almighty. But every single day, this guy was praying for the consolation of Israel. He was praying about the Messiah and coming. Because if you look in those scriptures, you would understand that we talked about the consolation of Israel and how it would come. It was talking about, in capital letters, that it would be Christ Jesus that would come. It would be a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of Israel itself. Every single day. Are you with me? Every single day, this guy would come to the house of God. And he, just like you and I, has two things that throw us off. You know what they are? Our eyes and our ears. And I can imagine as Simeon would go to the temple every day <clears throat> and those people would come in. Listen, every child wasn't born on the same day of the month and then on the same day later they all came in to be circumcised, the male children. You got to know that this happened every day. So Simeon didn't miss a day at the temple because he didn't want to miss a day and missing out on seeing the Messiah come in. So he constantly watched people. And can you imagine, you got Brother Craig and, and their family, okay? And Brother Craig, you know, if <clears throat> they're well off. They, the circumcision was done with golden scalpels because they have so much money. We all know that they do, right? They have so much money, and they're just loaded. And if you need money, you just ask Craig, and he'll get it. He's got a tree he picks it from. And, uh, and then you got Brother Carl over here, and just poor. <laughs> Just dirt poor, you know what I mean? He doesn't have anything. Craig comes in with his family, and they've got their precious little boy, you know, and they're going to have their sacrifice. And Craig's got this lamb that is shiny. The coat is shining on it. Casey's washed this thing up, and we know how she loves animals. She has taken care of it and done all this stuff. They've got the best of the best of the best. There's Cody in his royal clothing and, and, and regal, and, and there's, there's Sarah and her princess, all this stuff, and, and they come in and, and Simeon's eyes and his ears could deceive him and think a king is coming. The scripture says a king is coming and he could be tempted to look in his prayers and go, I bet it's that family. I bet it's going to be them. And he goes over there and there's the one, the little boy, the eight days old that they're going to have the circumcision for. And he looks and goes, no, but he's tempted to. You say, what do you mean, Brother Steve? There's so many of us today that's tempted to go, oh, well, God's answered my prayers. And I go, well, how do you know he's answered your prayers? Because this other job's paying $15,000 more, and I know God wants me to be blessed more, so therefore I know God answered the prayer in that way. That's not always the case. 
God wants you to be in the center of his will more than you are in finances. And so that's not always the case, but I hear people say it all the time. They always do this, and many times God gets the blame for stuff that he didn't even do. Because why? Because our eyes and our ears. And then all of a sudden, Brother Carl comes in, him and Miss Deborah, and they just pour dirt. <laughs> they walk in, and they don't have anything. Now, the Word of God says in the book of Leviticus, Brother Butch, that when they come to bring that child and to dedicate that child to the Lord that day at his circumcision, that they are to have a lamb without spot and without blemish. They had to have the best. You know why they had to have the best? Because it was God. It was supposed to be representation, so they were to bring their best. But God made not exceptions, but he took who could afford that in that moment. Now, it come to Pentecost, you had to have, no matter if you're dirt poor or not, you better save some money somewhere. And you needed a perfect lamb without spot and blemish. But on that dedication day, you know what? Brother Carl and them didn't have any other things to bring. They didn't have a lamb to offer. But all they had was those doves. And the Bible says that Simeon, he saw that. So Simeon had to trust the Lord that if a king was coming, it couldn't be on how he thought he should come. But in difficult prayers, it had to be, God, you answer it, and I'll trust your answer. And so when he saw him come, he looked at that child and he held the child up and he blessed the name of God. And he said, Lord, let your servant now depart in peace because my eyes, you know what he said? He said, my eyes. He said, I've seen a lot of things through my life, but now finally my eyes have become sight. My faith has become sight. He was saying, now my, now my eyes see your salvation. And he says, and I've beheld the glory of all this. He says, and he says, which you've prepared before the face of all the people a lot to lighten the Gentiles, but he would be the glory of the people of Israel. And what he was saying in that one small statement, he was sent to save the sins of the whole world now. He was going to be a light to lighten all these Gentile nations, these Roman people, so that they could be saved, but yet he was going to be the glory of Israel. Amen? He was going to be a wonderful, wonderful beauty of Israel. So how or what did trust Simeon, what trust did Simeon have? He had to look for a king among the poor people, as well as the rich people. He had to look for a Messiah among the sacrifices. He had to trust the Spirit. Listen, three times in the Scriptures, we're going to close, three times in the Scriptures, and I don't even know where it's at, but let me find it real quick. Three times in the Scriptures, the Bible says, I think it, Patty, you might, you, Patty's better than me, she can find it, but three times he tells them in verse 25 through 32 that the Holy Spirit was on this guy. It says the Holy Ghost was upon Simeon. It says that the Holy Ghost was moving upon him, and when he was waiting, look at the next verse in verse number 26, it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he wouldn't see death until he seen the Lord's Christ. In verse number 27, it says he was led to go to the temple by the Holy Ghost. And this guy, in his prayers, he was led by the Spirit. And that's where, I'm trying to help you today, that's where you need and I need the help the most is that our prayers must be guided and led, and the answers of God's prayers must be guided and led through the Holy Spirit. Some of the hardest things to do in our difficult times is waiting, but also making sure that we're in tune with Him. David said something, and I'm going to close, but David said something in, in uh, Psalms chapter 62, and in verse number 5, he says, Lord, he said, my soul... He said, wait thou only upon God, for I, my expectation is for him. 
If you look at chapter 61 and the beginning of chapter 62, you'll find out David's prayer. He's addressing God and he's talking to God. And then all of a sudden, David switches and he's talking to himself. He's, he, David's trying to convince himself to hold on to the Lord. Look at what he says. He says, soul. It reminds me, it reminds me of what we do. I'll say to myself, self, you know, and talking to yourself. He goes, soul. He said, my soul, wait on God. Wait upon the Lord. Don't wait for all this other stuff. Wait only upon the Lord. My expectation is from him. And what he's saying is, is that my expectation is, is that I know he's going to do something. It's my expectation. I've put it all on him. Only on him. Just wait. Elijah, under the juniper tree, he, play, he prayed a fleshly prayer. While he was under the juniper tree, he prayed a fleshly prayer. Oh, God, I'm all alone and no one else is serving you. And this Jezebel woman is going to kill me and all this stuff. Blah, 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 blah. But when he was laying over there at the desert and when he woke up from his, dream, from his sleep and he saw there, Brother Patrick, he saw a cruise of oil and a, a vessel of water, then he knew my only expectation of hope my only expectation of God being with me and answering me is in Him. It's not in others. Jezebel can't take anything from me that God doesn't allow. So therefore, my hope is in Him. Soul, be reminded. Look at what the next thing he says. He says, He only is my rock. He only is my salvation. He only is my defense. And look at this. In a good Baptist word, I shall not be moved. You know what I mean? I shall not be moved. What he means is that although I may be shaken, I'll not be shaken. He said, although I'll be this way and things are coming my way, he said, I will not be uprooted. I'll not be plucked up. You know what? That's what we need to know. Difficult times would come. And then all of a sudden, David starts moving this transition. He says, in God is my salvation. In God is my glory. He's the rock of my strength. You know what that means? People come up to me and they say, Brother Steve, I love you. And you're just so strong. Thank you for being so strong. And I look at them, Craig, and I go, you have no idea who I am. You have no clue how weak and frail I am. You have no idea. People go, oh, Brother Steve, you did such a good job. And you're preaching. And even in the services and stuff yesterday and, the, and weeks ago and stuff, I had a couple of weeks ago and Sister Betty and stuff, and they go, oh, it's just so good. And, just all that. and I'm like, you have no idea what's going on. You have no idea when I get along how much I break down. You have no idea my prayers that I'm praying to God. God, I'm worthless. I can't think of anything. God, I need help. But I've learned I don't have to be strong. I don't have to be strong. God's never told me to be that. He's told me that I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. In other words, I don't have to be this man, man, be strong, and I'm going to do all this. I have to go, God, I need the strength of Christ in my life for you to flow through and work through. That's what the scripture says. David says, in God is my salvation and my glory. He is the rock of my strength. If you want to know how I'm still standing, the only way I'm still standing is not because of my stinking feet. The only way that I'm standing is because there's a rock right here and I'm standing on the rock. 
If you want to know how you make it through, it's only because of Christ. You want to know how that you can get through difficult times and difficult prayers and all this other stuff in your life that's going on when you can be with families who have lost friends. You can stand at the hospital. You can do this. You can stand on the side of the road, Brother Craig, as you and I have stood before in the middle of the rain while one person has one son here and one person doesn't. You want to know why? Because it's the rock that we stand on. It's the foundation, not us. It's the foundation under us. And that's what David is trying to get into our heads. He's the rock of my salvation. Look at these other words. He's my refuge. In other words, when I feel that I'm in trouble and I want to run and flee, I can flee and run to him and find refuge, Brother Bill. David one time called him the pavilion. Run underneath him. He says, he's my refuge, or excuse me, and my refuge is in God. And now here's the last thing. It totally tilts. David says, my soul, self, calm down. But now David totally changes. And he's talking to me and to you. And he says, trust in him at all times, you people. Ye people, you should trust in him. Notice that the scripture doesn't say trust in him in hard times. Or trust in him in good times. Because that would take away from trust. It says trust in him at all times. When you feel like your family is lost. When you feel like sin has ravaged your life. Trust in him at all times. You people. And look at these words. This is great. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Pour out your heart. They took Jesus that day at Calvary. After Sister Peggy, they had plucked some of his beard out and left spots of his beard bald and bleeding. After Roman soldiers who were brutish men took a crown of thorns and drove it on his head with a reed. After they had offered him that sour or wine mixed with that gall or with that poisonous stuff that was going to deaden his taste so that he wouldn't feel the pain. After they had beat him unmercifully and made him unrecognizable to all people. After they did all that, they placed him on a cross and drove nails into his hands and his feet. After all of that, Jesus cried out, forgive them, Father. They mocked him. First Peter says that they hurled, the translation actually says they hurled insults at him. Can you think about it for a moment? That means that they took, it's like they took rocks. It's Matthew or Mark come by and it says as they walk by, they wag their heads at him. Brother Greg, can you imagine if Jesus is on the cross there and some of the most holy people that you know of come by and they don't even have compassion, not because he's, you know, they claim to be the Son of God, they don't even have compassion for a simple human. And they walk by and they wag their heads. They're trying to destroy his heart and his spirit. And literally, in, in, in 1 Peter, it talks about that they hurled insults at him. So they took their words and they threw it at him in such a way so it would inflict him and hurt him inside, inwardly. They said, if he's the Christ, let him come down. He saved others. He can't even save himself. What a fool. This man is not going to, he's not dying for anyone. They mocked him and they laughed at him. 
And Jesus cried out in the middle of all of that because the sky grew dark. He cried out in the middle of all of his pain and his suffering and his thirst. And he said in those words, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. If you look at that word, it says he was saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt alone in that moment. But when he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, they were thinking he was calling for Elijah. They said, oh, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet. Let's listen. He calleth for Elijah. Remember, they were going to put that reed on his lips. But they said, oh, don't do it yet. He's calling for Elijah. You know what they were doing? They were mocking him, Brent. Elijah did what? He prayed and fire came down from heaven and leapt up the altar. And then 400 prophets of Baal were killed that day. Right? Over 400 prophets died that day. You know what they were doing, Carl? They were going, oh, listen, he's calling for Elijah. Maybe God's going to send fire on all of us and kill us. Ha, 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 laughing at him while they hurled insults at him. And then he died. And he said, it's finished. To tell us that it's paid in full, he died. And they came with clubs or whatever brother Bill to break the legs of those people to get them off the cross and make them die quicker they broke the kneecaps of those two others that were on his side but when they came to Jesus scripture tells us they came and found Jesus dead already and when they found Jesus dead already and I don't know who gave the command or if they just did it on their own the Bible says that a soldier took a sword and pierced his side and opened up his side And a lot of people look at that and they go, well, Brother Steve, what do you think that represents, that the water and the blood flowed out of there? Some people look at it medically because when you have a massive heart attack, they think that Jesus died of an actual broken heart because when you have a massive heart attack in the pericardium sac there around the heart, or pericardium sac around the heart, that when you have a massive heart attack, fluid builds up and that it's water that's there. People go, well, that's why, and it could be that way. But if you look at the scriptures, you may understand it a little bit clearer. There's some people because they say you got to go through the blood of Jesus and through the baptistry pool in order to do that. People weren't baptized by the water that came out of Jesus' body. There has to be some other meaning. And Jesus stood up and said, Unless you drink of my blood, and what he means by that is partake of me and receive me as Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of your sins, you have no part with me at the Last Supper. But he also stood up in the middle of the solemn feast there that day. Those priests would go during the tabernacle of the, uh, excuse me, the Feast of Tabernacles. The priests would go down, Brother Brent, to the Pool of Salaam. And they would take this pitcher and they would dip it down into the waters of the Pool of Salaam and they would bring it back. They would all dance as they come back. They would rejoice and praise God and they would sing all of these wonderful psalms and praises and they'd get to that old bloody Temple Mount and up there where the altar was, Brother Craig, and all of that bloodshed from those animals were there and all of a sudden before the priest poured it out, everybody get real quiet. They called it a solemn assembly, which is most of our Baptist worship services. And that high priest would begin to pour that water out on there. And those people were thanking God for the water. Thanking God for the wonderful spirit of that water. Because Jesus told the woman at the well, If you drink of this water, you'll never thirst again. Out of you shall flow rivers of living water. And they would pour that water down in the middle of that solemn assembly. Jesus stood up and cried to all of them and says, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and I will give him of the water of life freely. And when they crucified him there that day, he was in the act of high priest as the blood that was shed as the sacrifice but as high priest water poured on top of that mount also which was showing that we have forgiveness of our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ alone but yet through the precious word of God because he's the word of God we also have life now and now life everlasting the Bible says Jesus was poured out 
Peter says that he was poured out on the cross. Jesus' whole life was poured out. It was like they took him, Sister Rhonda, and they took his life and they wrung him out on the cross and he was poured out before everybody. Paul said these words. He said, I am now poured out. My life is poured out. He said, I know. I have fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. Amen. He did all those things. Why would Jesus do something like that? Look at this last picture and you would understand it a little bit better. This last picture shows us that it's not that the cross was later on some kind of thing but the manger was in the shadow of the cross when Jesus was born it wasn't all about the manger it was about where he was going he was going to the cross why for the car I don't know if you've ever said that never prayed that before ever prayed that before but you go God why why did that happen to your son why did you allow that to happen to your son and to me Brother Craig, I find it. I find it in Psalms chapter 62 that the reason Jesus was poured out for us is so that when we're in difficult of times and we're needing him, it says we can pour our heart out before him. He was poured out, Brother Bill, so that we can pour our hearts out. They hurled insults at him and he allowed it to happen. Brett, he could have went zap and you're done. I would have. And you would have. He didn't. Why would Jesus let people hurl insults at him? So that we could understand 1 Peter 5 and verse 7. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. See, he allowed them to hurl their insults so that we could hurl all of our troubles, all of our trials. And we could go, Lord, thank you. We have an opportunity to talk to him in prayer. And go, Lord, I'm pouring my heart out to you. I don't know if you're there. I don't know if you've been there. But I can promise you this. You will be there. You will be at a place in your life where you don't know how to say it, how to pray it, how to walk it and do all that stuff. But it's because of what he's done that you can have this hope that in difficult times, in difficult prayers, give God time and give God the trust that he needs. Amen. Let me